Please turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament. We'll be reading in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1. And we'll be reading verses 19 through to the end, to verse 46. And our particular concentration this morning will be on that section in the middle, verse 34 through to 40. However, we're reading Deuteronomy 1, starting in verse 19. Hear then God's word. So we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea, and I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it, as the Lord God of your fathers has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us, and let them search out the land for us, and bring back words to us of the way by which we should go up, and of the cities into which we shall come. The plan pleased me well, so I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe. And they departed, and went up into the mountains, and came to the valley of Eshkol, and spied it out. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands, and brought it down to us. And they brought back words to us, saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us. Where can we go up? Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to you, Do not be terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God, who goes before you, he will fight for you, according to all he did for you in Egypt before your eyes, and in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, as a man carries his son, in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet, for all that, You did not believe the Lord your God, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you, to pitch your tents, to show you the way you should go in the fire by night and in the cloud by day. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath, saying, Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. 
the Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, even you shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him. For he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, Tell them, Do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Then you returned and wept before the Lord, but the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. So ends the reading of God's word. So as I said, our concentration this morning is on those verses 34 through to 40. The title of the sermon, uh, if you're interested, uh, is The Evil of Unbelief. The Evil of Unbelief. And the preceding verses, before we get to our passage, what we witness is Israel, they have reached the border of the promised land that God was going to give them. The land that he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. They had arrived. And in a faint, Moses was saying, here we are. Let's go in. Through the, the scouts that are sent in, their report comes back that it is a good land, but they also speak of the fortifications, the, the, the people, the, the Anakim, the giants that are in the land. And then Israel are filled with fear. They are discouraged. And they grumble. They show their discontentment and they refuse to obey. They refuse to enter into the land that God was going to give to them. And there are two things that we need to just uh, highlight in the reading before our passage that they say that, that stick out in, our, in their protestations that really flows into the judgment of God that comes after that. In verse 27, the Israelites say, Because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt. Because the Lord hates us. Israel here are bringing into question the very character of God. They are attributing to him the motivation of hate when actually it is his loving faithfulness, his steadfast love that has brought them to this point. And they are saying, that's because God hates us. He's brought us here. And then in verse 32, 
after Moses tries to encourage them, after Moses recalls all the mighty deeds that God has done for Israel to get them to this point, it says, after all that, you did not believe the Lord your God. You did not believe. And so at the heart of Israel's rebellion was the corrupt root of unbelief. And so we get into our passage in verse 34. And the text says, And the Lord heard. The Lord heard. What was murmured in the privacy of tents, what was ushered under hushed breath, the Lord heard. Now it might strike us as obvious in our more theologically aware moments. Of course God hears God hears everything. God knows everything under the sun. He knows all that happens. Even in the depths of our hearts, he knows all. But how convenient it is for our hearts at times to just perhaps push such knowledge under the rug. To momentarily cast such thoughts and facts away from us as we seek to indulge and permit ourselves into that sin which our hearts desire. And in those moments, we minimize God's omniscience, that is, his all-knowing. And so we blind our conscience as we walk headlong into that which our twisted hearts desire. I wonder, my friends, how much sin in our lives could be averted and avoided if we held more readily and more steadfastly in our minds, in our hearts, that God sees all, that God knows all, the very thoughts that go unspoken. Would our consciences permit such an act or an attitude if we knew that our holy God looked upon us in those moments with with a displeasure that is kindled by sin unfought for and indulged in our lives. For in our text, God sees right through the words of Israel. And what he sees is unbelief, rebellion, and a distorted view of who he was. And what did these things stir in him? Anger. God is angry at unbelief. God is angry when his character is maligned. The text says, The Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry. Christian brother and sister, we can so often think of sin as only uh, in only physical terms. The outward actions of doing What is wrong? Yet sin is more. It is the attitudes, it is the hidden desires and loves. It is the clinging to and finding comfort in worldly things. It is the act of not only doing what is wrong, but it is the failure to do what is right. Are our hearts and our consciences sensitive to this fact? Because unbelief will keep us from doing many things that are right. And it is sin. 
we're entering in a world, into a world where many costs will arise from truly following and being a disciple of Christ. Will you stand up? Will you stand out? Will you speak out for the sake of the gospel? Will you refuse to bow the knee to cultural pressure when it demands that you live contradictory to God's command? Will you refuse to participate in commonly practiced sin? Or will you remain quiet? Will you compromise? Will you do that which the world demands? Will you watch others in their sin, perhaps on our television screens, and in our hearts be unmoved, unaffected, or even perhaps make light of what we're witnessing? Jesus advises his disciples in the world to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. That is, we need to be wise living in this world. It's not always wise to be shouting out loudly our views. But in those times when it is right, will we be bold to do so? For when we fail to do what is right before God in the sight of men, we have let unbelief seize our hearts. You might protest, well, I believe in God. I believe in Him. But have we let fear drag our hearts into disobedient unbelief in those moments, like Israel? In that moment, Israel was scared. And by all physical outlook, they had good reason to be. When we look out to the world and everything going on, we too might have, physically speaking, good reason to be concerned and fear. But we must not let fear drive us in to disobedience. Fear is fueled by unbelief. When I fail to act obediently towards God because I fear the consequences of man, his uh, rejection, his scorning, his anger, losing my job, being labeled a bigot, losing friends, all of which are very real possibilities. Or when I do so, unbelief in God's character and in his promises have captured my heart. And I have become a slave, a prisoner to it, because it prevents me from doing that which I desire to do. Fear then, in that moment, has blossomed out of the fertile soil of unbelief. My friends, these are real issues. They are daily problems. We worry for our family, don't we? We, we worry about our livelihood, our social stability. Our, uh, we value our friends and our family. Yet how many times have we failed to believe in God's care for our lives? How many times have we been tempted to uh, malign God's perfect attributes in our hearts? Fearing that he has forgotten us. Forgetting that he is in complete control over every detail of our lives and the world. 
Perhaps we actively doubt his goodness towards us in those moments when life gets difficult. So it is with the state of sinful hearts. Yet God sees, God knows the battles that wage in our hearts. And it is good that God sees and God knows because we have a wonderful high priest who intercedes on our behalf, fully acquainted with our weakness and our failures provoke his pity. But God also sees and will discipline his way with children for their good. Now upon hearing Israel's unbelief and in his anger, in verse 35, God swears an oath. He makes a most solemn declaration. He says, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give them. God had once promised Abraham in the covenant with him that his descendants would inherit the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All of that land was to be long and given to the descendants of Abraham. But here in our text on the border of the promised land, God makes another promise. The same word where God swears in this judgment is the same word where God swears to Abraham in his covenant. And here in judgment he swears that not one of the Israelites who saw those wonders performed in Egypt. In Numbers 14, the parallel section to our text here, it specifically states that it was those over the age of 20 would not enter the land. Not one of those would come into the inheritance promised them. They would be turned around, given to their desire, when they said, better that they had died in the wilderness than to be given into the hands of the Canaanites and the Amorites. And so, die in the wilderness they would. See then, my friends, again, the seriousness of the crime that Israel committed. The seriousness of unbelief. If there is one thing that we can grasp today, I pray that it would be the horror of unbelief. Let your hearts reckon it as abhorrent. And may this hatred towards it fill you with the strength of determination to be rid of this plague. It is the, it is the forerunner of many a sin. And because of this sin, God labels this generation filled with such unbelief as an evil generation. Evil. We probably have the label evil reserved for a few categories in life. Murder is evil. Sex trafficking is evil. Genocide is evil. But harboring unbelief, do we reckon that as evil? We need to get to that place where we do. Especially when we recognize it in ourselves. For if we see it as anything less than evil, we will tolerate it. And if there's one thing that this text teaches is that we cannot afford to tolerate unbelief. We cannot make ourselves comfortable 
with it. We must drive it out with as much commitment as Israel were later to have in driving out the inhabitants of the land they were to inherit. Perhaps the phrase evil generation rings a bell in our ears. It is uttered from the lips of our Savior in the Gospels a few times, addressing unbelieving Israel of his day. One example is Matthew 12.39, where our Savior says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. The Jews of Jesus' generation refused to believe Jesus, and they insisted on a sign to back up his claims. And so our Savior labeled them evil. What is the lesson in all this? My friends, it is this. Seek to rid yourself from the evil of unbelief. Stop excusing obedience to God's word with rationalizing. We confess God's sovereignty. We, we love that doctrine. We love the five solas that emphasize the prerogative of God in salvation. These things, they are right and they are true. But how we live so often as if God were not sovereign. I challenge myself here. If we truly believe that God is all-powerful, that he is good, that he is loving, that he is wise, then we will obey. But how often the thought comes into our head, but what if this happens? Or what if that happens? Or what if doing this brings something terrible upon me or my family? Such fears will naturally enter into us. But do not give yourself over to unbelief. Believe in your sovereign God who grants all things that are good and needful for you, his child. And if you are to suffer worldly loss because of your obedience, then let it be so at the hands of our God. For we are not in control anyway. And the things of this world, they are not yours to keep. They have been entrusted to you for a time by God. Better to obey and receive a heavenly eternal treasure than to disobey and risk spiritual ruin. So then learn from Israel from their mistakes, from their unbelief, their failure to obey God and to trust God at this critical moment. For it led to a generation being cast away from the land and dying in the wilderness. Now, very briefly, I want to explore why is unbelief evil? Three points here. Unbelief is generally formed by one or more of the following. One, it arises from a miscomprehension of the character and intentions of God. We misunderstand, miscomprehend who God is and his purposes for us. Two, unbelief arises from a distortion of his divine attributes. That is, our understanding of who God is in all of his power and in all of his might and his attributes is subpar, it is anemic. We are missing something. 
And thirdly, unbelief arises from just simply a distrust towards the promises of God. We have God's promises, we have his word, and the fact is we just don't believe them in our hearts. And each one of these points at its root deforms the true nature of God. Now, if we were to, well, we readily acknowledge if we malign or if we deform fellow human beings' character, we bring them into question, then, then that is wrong. But what happens when we do it to an infinite, holy, perfect God? When in our hearts we blaspheme against Him, we elevate our own knowledge above God's, as if we knew better. Well then, my friends, that is evil. Some of the consequences of unbelief, in like manner, very briefly, three points. Firstly, the continued state of unbelief for the non-Christian is that it blinds them to their need of the gospel and of God. It shackles them from responding to his saving message. And so then, in this way, they are blindly walking into eternal death. Secondly, and more practically for us, unbelief hinders God's people in their service to God. Hinders God's people in their service. And thirdly, it robs Christians of much comfort that they ought to have, as unbelief plagues them with fear and doubt. So that is just a brief sketch of the sin of unbelief. But what is the alternative then? If sin, uh, if the sin of unbelief is here, and we ought to avoid this, well, what is over here that we ought to do? And you all know it, my friends, it's pretty simple. Believe. Believe in God. God pronounces judgment because Israel did not believe. And because of it, the evil generation did not inherit the promise. Unbelief today is still a matter of eternal life and death. It is still the difference between entering the promise of God and his kingdom or being cast away from the kingdom into outer darkness. And so the gospel invitation is made today. Now is the day of salvation. And in our text then, verse 36 now, there are some notable exceptions to the judgment. Firstly, we have presented to us Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Numbers 32 verse 12 specifically reads, Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. I read that because of that addition. Interestingly, Caleb was not an Israelite, strictly speaking. His father, Jephunneh, was a Kenizzite. Now, the Kenizzites were one of the people that Israel were to drive out of the land. Yet the reason that Caleb and his family were an exception, that they belonged to the Israel of God, is clearly told. He wholly followed the Lord. What a wonderful picture of the future inclusion of the Gentiles. Those who are outside of the covenant people of God being brought in by the grace of God. And so just as we have spoken of unbelief causing disobedience, Caleb believed and so he obeyed. He would be 
one of the few alongside uh, Joshua who would encourage the population to actually enter the land. Uh, And in Numbers also, it speaks of uh, Caleb and Joshua's witness led to the people wanting to stone them. Yet in the, despite, despite that opposition, Caleb's obedience stood in the face of threats to his life. My friends, let this be a great example. Let it be a, a, a witness to us that we ought to trust God with our very lives and obey. Those who wholly follow the Lord will be saved. And this is why we must preach a costly gospel. We have been burdened with many in the visible church resting their salvation on a single prayer, on their baptism or an experience void of any fruit that followed. Such single events that do not manifest a changed life to any degree, that do not bear fruit in accordance with their repentance, They do not indicate a saving faith. Men shall not be permitted to heaven because of a one-off prayer. But by faith, whose fruit is manifested in prayer, long and short, in tears of gratitude and sorrow over sin, that is the Christian life. It's not the prayer that saves, but the prayer evidences saving faith. Saving faith will produce fruit. Likewise, one who was baptized many years ago but is indistinguishable from the world does not rest assured of salvation. Baptism is a public declaration of us dying with Christ, dying to the old man, dying to ourself, and rising to new life in Christ. And so it is an expression of the struggle that will mark the believer's life in this world. There will be a fight that exists within us, one that is perpetually dying to the old and rising to the new. If no struggle with the flesh exists, we are not wholly following the Lord. But following him is costly. It demands our very lives, our dying every day to our sinful passions and desires, daily mortifying that which, uh, which is in us that is contrary to God's will and word. I fear too many will hear the words of our Savior, depart from me, I never knew you, because they never heard the true gospel. And so they rested in a prayer, in a past experience, and never proceeded to wholly follow the Lord. Now, we need to say and make clear that not one of us can perfectly follow God. But we follow one who has. Jesus Christ. And by his spirit we will be strengthened. We will be given the desire to want to wholly follow the Lord. No matter how frail our attempt is. No matter how often we fall flat on our face. By his grace we will always be picked up. shrug ourselves off and try again. There is grace abundant for us. Now briefly, the next named exception is Joshua. 
The text says of him in verse 38 that he will, uh, he shall cause Israel to inherit the land. Under his leadership, Israel would know victory and rest in the land. And we today enter into our rest through another who has caused us to enter it. Yeshua, Jesus, our leader, has done that which could not, uh, that we could not do for ourselves. He has saved us. He has drawn us into his kingdom when we were helpless to save ourselves. And then moving on to the final exception, and as we draw this to a close, the final exception to the judgment of God in verse 39 are the little ones of Israel. Now, our minds will naturally go to the lovely little babies and toddlers, but as we've seen from numbers, actually what we should have in our mind is those below the age of 20 are included in this group. These, like those of any generation, would have been a great concern for the families of Israel. And it appears that their concern for their children was one of the motivating factors for their rebellion. Moses says, uh, verse 39, Moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims, Israel was scared that by entering the land, their children would be captured by their enemies. And such a thought was too much to bear for Israel. And so in this moment, the heart of any parent or grandparent will naturally tune in to that very human emotion of what Israel here were experiencing and fearing harm to their children. Many of us perhaps have this attitude. Well, I don't so much care for my own well-being. I'm willing to risk my life. But I can't bear to endanger my children. And so the fear of the fate of the next generation led to disobedience rooted in unbelief. And the final two points of application from this then that I want to make there's two points. The sum of them both is that familiar tune that we have sounded already. Let not unbelief drive us into disobedience. Not believing the Lord is a far greater threat to the safety of your children than any worldly thing. So let us consider point one. The personal fears for our own children. Now, Christian parents... Grandparents, we ought to be fully aware of the dangers that our children face in this world. In the schools, the children of many believers are being subjected to the forceful presentation of many ideas contrary to the scriptures. Good is considered evil, and, and evil is presented as the only humane and decent option. And aside from this, many will no doubt be exposed to sexual perversions, Explicit material on friends' phones at a very young age. Some may be introduced to addictive substances. They are immersed in a culture of unbelief. We ought not to underestimate the pressure upon our young children. And we, as their guardians, we are faced with this dilemma of, of needing to care for their their physical well-being. But, but on top of that, we have their spiritual well-being too. And we might be led to shrink back at the seeming hopelessness of the task 
before us. Some may shy away from teaching them sound doctrine, lest they be pressured into sharing their views with unwanted consequences. We need to hear from our text today the need to entrust our children to God. Obey the scriptures that command us to raise up our children in the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And we are to do this with all our might, with all diligence, and then entrust their lives to Him. Now for us who homeschool, there are other worries. Oh, what about when the day comes, if it should, when that option is taken away from us? We might worry about our own ability to raise up our children in all the things that are necessary for them to know. And so we too have fears that drive our behavior in ways that are contrary to the word. Discipline is a hot topic today. How do we raise our children when governing bodies legislate against biblical practices? And again, we are reminded of the costliness of the gospel. Of discipleship, sorry. Are we willing to obey and trust God? Or will we let unbelief and fear stay ourselves from being obedient? Godly discipline then requires wisdom. And so trust God. Your children are not your own. They are the Lord's. And their heavenly Father knows how to care for each and every one of them. Their lives, much like ours, will not be free from trouble and hardship. But God is far better able to keep them than we are. And so salvation belongs to the Lord. And as for you, parent, grandparent, as far as you are concerned, obey God and trust in Him. And finally, we can equally fear for the next generation of the church. Will the church still be here in 50 years' time? Many ask themselves. And so this thinking has led many churches into pragmatism. That is doing anything to get people in the doors. This too is disobedience and it has led the visible church into many unfaithful practices to appear more friendly, more worldly, more entertaining, more inclusive. The list goes on. I have seen clips of pastors coming down to the pulpit on a zip line. Services look more like a rock concert. Preachers cracking jokes, telling stories, anything but preaching the word. Similarly, there are the parts of the church that seeks unbridled emotion and experience. A spirituality that is foreign to the Bible. Glitter pumped through the airing vents. Certain manifestations encouraged that do not accord with the Holy Spirit. And all these things, they are aimed at winning over the world. Fear of offending the world drives congregations to capitulate to cultural trends, which is affirming many who ought not to be in the ministry and are commending lifestyles that are neither Christian nor holy. Unbelief then is rife. And that seed lingers within our own hearts, Christian. And so keep watch over yourself. Guard your heart. Preach the word. Always be refreshing yourself in the apostolic faith. 
Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Pray for one another, for your church, your leaders, the governments. And God will take care of the next generation. For he always has. We don't want the world coming in and changing the church. We pray to the end that the world might be changed by the grace of God through the witness of the church. So God will keep and call a new generation. And as for us, brothers and sisters, trust in God and obey him. Amen.